The Premier League season is over, but we still have Champions League and Europa League to come, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name's Jack Pitbrook, Charlie Eccleshare is still off, so I'm joined by James Moore and Athletic colleague Luke Brown. Hi Luke, nice, great to have you on the show. Thanks Jack, yeah, very excited to be here, uh, a true honour. Fantastic, so this week we're largely going to be talking about a piece that we published on The Athletic last Monday, which is a big profile of Daniel Levy. Um, so this is a story that Charlie Ackleshare and I worked on for quite a while, where we spoke to dozens of people who knew Levy or who worked with him, and just trying to assess his time at the club, because he's been running Tottenham for basically 20 years now. It was, I think, in sort of December 2000 when Enoch bought Alan Sugar's stake in the in the club, which I think was just under 30%. Back then, Spurs were managed by George Graham. Um, it was a very different time. And the club as a whole was worth, was valued, I think, with, in that deal as £80 million. And the, the valuation of the club is now £2 billion. They've moved well, not very far geographically, but they're in a fantastic new £1.2 billion stadium. They've got a new training ground. Um, things are very, very different for Tottenham. So we just tried to look at specific areas Levy's worked in, whether it's transfers or the stadium or the future of the club, uh, to try and get a sense of what he's actually achieved and how he operates. Um James, it's impossible to go to a Spurs game now without hearing a few whispers and stickers from Spurs fans who don't like Daniel Levy. Um, and those Enoch out, profit over glory stickers, which you do see whenever Spurs go away. Um, can you sum up how you feel the Spurs fan base feel about Enoch and Daniel Levy at the moment? Well, firstly, I'd say it's possible for you to go to a game uh, with your privilege as a journalist to be in the press box and there not be any fans there. So you're not going to hear it at the moment. That's very true. That's very true. And also, I would say that if Spurs had won, say, their previous three games, you probably wouldn't hear it that much then either. Um, it, it's definitely something that rears its head when when things are not going so well. Um, well we just need to call the people that, that are critical of him fickle. I just don't think it's something that people vocalise quite as much in the good moments. Uh, and, I, and I think some or a lot of the criticisms of, of, of Levy are valid. Um Probably less so the ones to do with how much money is being spent on players and more so ones about ticket prices and the fact that he seemingly wanted to move the club to Stratford. So I, I think, you know, there, there are kind of divisions among the fans and they're kind of soft divisions. I don't think it, I've ever really seen or heard of it coming to blows or getting particularly fractious in the stands. I wouldn't like to kind of uh, put, put kind of percentages on the split, but if I had to guess... I'd say it's probably about sort of 70, 60, 40, maybe pro. That's very unscientific. No, that, that sounds like a good basis. Um, and how do you feel this 
this season has changed that? Do you sense the move the mood is moving towards Levy or against him? I would say it, you can only really say it. it, it it would have gone against him. I don't really see that many people would have been would have been massively impressed by what they've seen this season. Um, which isn't to say that Mourinho hasn't come in and done a reasonably good job since November. But I think what happened in the first few months of the season kind of highlighted, I think, a lot of the criticisms that people would make of, of Levy in terms of the way he, he does his transfer business and the fact that Pochettino clearly wanted to rebuild the squad um, and the, the club just... Didn't do that, essentially. Um, which isn't to say that they need to spend millions and millions and millions of pounds. But clearly things need to be freshened up. Deals need to be done more quickly. Uh, and it, and if that all came to a head this season, really. We're offering you the chance to try out The Athletic for free. You can read all of our articles on Spurs by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to take advantage of our 30-day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Luke, what's your assessment of the decision of Daniel Levy to appoint Mourinho, which is really one of the biggest decisions he's ever had to make? Oh my God. My first question on this podcast, and you've gone straight for the Mourinho question. Um, I think it was wrong, if I'm honest. Um, for, I mean, first, I think Pochettino should have been given a little bit longer. That's probably a bit contentious, and most people wouldn't agree with that. But I believe he had earned that right. But I guess that's another kind of question. Um, but I'm not really sure Mourinho was the right man for the job for me. Um, I don't think Spurs have significantly improved since he's been appointed. They have improved, but not significantly. Um, and to bring it back to Levy, for me, I mean, I guess my biggest problem with Levy in a football sense is just his completely insatiable appetite for a Hollywood manager. <laughs> Um, you know, when you go back through his record of appointments, he just cannot resist the big, sexy appointment. Um, all the way back to, to, you know, former England manager Glenn Hoddle, former France manager Santini, um, UEFA Cup winner Ramos. I guess AVB kind of fits into that category as well. You know, he was quite a big, exciting appointment, even though he'd failed at Chelsea. And then we get the, the former big thing, Jose Mourinho. So I'm not, I, I'm not really a fan of that decision. Um, and for me, it's quite interesting that when Levy actually had the kind of guts to deviate from that model, and when he recruited somebody who was a little bit unglamorous and somebody that a lot of Spurs fans weren't excited by in um, in Maurizio Pochettino, it actually worked. So for me, I think there's still quite a lot of frustration at how that relationship ended, and, and also frustration that maybe Levy didn't think a little bit bigger or think a little bit broader in appointing a, a younger manager or somebody slightly less proven and instead went for somebody quite kind of tried and tested. Is it fair to say, James, that of Levy's various managerial appointments, I actually don't have the number in front of me as to how many there have been. I think only three of them have definitely been successes, and that's Yol, Redknapp and Pochettino. He did kind of stumble into Martin Yol, didn't he? That certainly wasn't his plan A for that season. Obviously, that was a season that Jack Santini had been brought in under under Frank Arneson. I think I'm right in saying Joel was Arneson's man, and Santini was was Levy's pick. And then obviously that didn't that didn't work particularly well in those first few months of the season. And surely, sure enough, by November, Joel was the manager. So yes, Joel was a success and, and massively popular with the fans. But it, it was I don't think that was necessarily by design. Redknapp clearly came in an absolutely terrible moment for the club and took them uh, into the Champions League, which I don't think was something that anyone could have really, could have reasonably expected him to do. 
And yeah, Pochettino again, clearly a big success. So in terms of assessing those appointments, yeah, I think I think Harry was definitely a success. Harry was great. Harry was a success kind of in two different ways because he was brought in as a sort of firefighter to, you know, that kind of thing that English managers often get asked to do, which is to clean up after a usually like a sort of foreign manager who hasn't worked out and come in at Christmas and turn things around. And he did that. And then he subs- then he twice got Tottenham to fourth, um, which is like a very different sort of achievement. And I don't think Spurs... I don't know, actually, I should know this. I don't know off the top of my head when Spurs had last finished fourth before 2010. But it was quite a long time ago, I think, James. And um, Yeah. Do you want me to tell you when it was? Please. It was 1990 they finished third. Right. So it was a 10-year gap. No, wait, 20 years. 20 years. 2010 minus 1990 is 20. God, my brain is completely <laughs> fried. Um, so, yeah, it's like being, and yeah, they had some really good players. Like They had Baylor Modric and Van der Vaart and those guys. But it wasn't inevitable that they would finish there. And, you know, this was the era when big money was, I think, started to tell more and more back then. So I think Redknapp was a complete success. And, you know, if things had gone slightly differently in the 11-12 season, then they might have done even better. And they might not have sacked Redknapp and gone for AVB. Um, and then I guess... Pochettino is a slightly different case because, again, he, he wasn't the first choice that summer. The first choice was Louis van Gaal, who went to Manchester United to replace David Moyes, or rather to replace Ryan Giggs and his care, brief caretaker era. Um, and in many ways, there's, the Pochettino era is kind of the peak of Levy's 20 years in charge. But in the course of researching this piece, I did have a few people, two people say to me, do you think, do you think it was because of Pochettino or was it because of Levy that they had all the success because it's you know the the reason why it would be Pochettino is obvious because he he coached the team and got them to play this pressing style but at the same time it was Levy who appointed Pochettino and it was Levy who was responsible for helping to build this squad of incredibly young hungry ambitious energetic players um and I do think that Spurs's kind of approach to contract management did have a role to play as well but of course the way that things have, have collapsed in the last year or two on that front makes me think that maybe it was more to do with Pochettino than Levy ultimately. But I do think they did work very well together, the two of them, and their their relationship was obviously incredibly important to the successes of, of that period. Um, and Luke, do you, do you look back on the, the way that Pochettino era unraveled a bit as a kind of missed opportunity for Levy or something that he kind of let slip from his grasp a bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's it's very harsh to say that, you know, the kind of the golden age between 2014 and 19 was in spite of Levy. I mean, obviously Levy appointed Pochettino. He did back him in the transfer market. He did sign players. Um, also, I mean, there are a lot of stories about how Pochettino preferred working without a traditional sporting director and took on a lot of responsibility for identifying and signing players and actually, you know, in a few instances, told Levy that he didn't want certain players. Um, so I think like that's quite a kind of harsh narrative. It's difficult. I'm not really sh- sure what Levy's kind of greatest failure of that period would be. I'm, I'm not sure it's a failure to invest in the squad. I think with Levy during that period, he was so kind of eager to change the perception of Spurs as a selling club. Because up until Pochettino, Spurs had always sold their best players. You know, Berbatov, Modric, Bale. So I can understand why he wanted to change that, but I think he just ended up holding on to various players for too long and that's obviously what led to you know this squad needing this huge refresh and 
that was ultimately the the downfall of of Pochettino. So I suppose that was Levy's greatest failure in that period. Um, but I, I think it's very harsh to say that that success was in spite of him. Obviously, he was an integral part of that success. And also, we have to include the new stadium in that success because that came towards the end of that that period and has has really set Spurs up. So I'm hedging my bets. I'm not I'm not completely um, blaming Levy, but. It was a shame, I think, that Pochettino was never provided with that kind of refreshed squad in the way that, you know, somebody like Sir Alex Ferguson at United was, you know, he was consistently given that benefit. So, yeah, I do think that was a lost opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is, and I think which sums up a lot of Tottenham's story over the last 10 years or so, has been the way in which they can sell players. I think you're absolutely right that some of Levy's greatest successes in the transfer market have been getting really big fees for very good players who were highly coveted elsewhere. So £31 million for Dimitar Berbatov at midnight on deadline day in 2008. Uh, €100 million, Euros, so about £85 million, then a world record for Gareth Bale on deadline day 2013. I think they got £30 million for Luka Modric, so maybe not quite as much as it could have been in 2012 from Real Madrid. And then Kyle Walker, I think, is a similar example, had a long time left in his contract. He was City's number one choice after they failed to get Danny Alves in 2017. Uh, Levy waited and waited and waited until I think both teams were about to fly off to the US on their preseason tour. And then uh, City and Levy knew that City would buckle and pay the 50 plus million to sign Walker. So I think he's fantastic at that, that kind of brinkmanship. Like someone said to me, he's the best negotiator when he has leverage. So when he's got a player that other people want, he is fantastic getting the top prize. And the issue, and this is something which has come up quite a lot for Spurs in the last few years, is I don't think he's quite as good at selling players who other teams are not desperate for. So I think one of the big problems that Spurs have had strategically in the last few seasons has been when Pochettino wanted to refresh the squad, that meant they needed to sell players. But to sell, you know, if you're actively trying to sell players, you need to call, you know, you need to call up clubs and say, look, do you want to buy Toby Alderweireld or Moussa Sissoko or whoever. And that is obviously a very different from negotiation than from when you've got City coming to you trying to sign Carl Walker. And I think Spurs' failure to sell players in sort of 2018, 2019, when Poch wanted a bit of a refresh, is really why they couldn't get anyone in, which is why the squad struggled so much. So sometimes when I'm sat at home, I kind of like to envisage a different story for Spurs in the last few years. And I think the, the way it could have gone well would have been if Levy had accepted, frankly, some cut price money, sold Rose, maybe Ericsson, maybe Alderweireld, Sissoko, Wanyama, Lamella, any of those guys around the sort of 2017-2018 point. And yeah, people would have complained and said Spurs are a selling club, but at the same time, it would have brought in the money that could have bought new players and maybe the 2018-19 season would have gone differently. James, is that nonsense or does it make sense? My perception of him... Like like ten years plus back, um, was he was good at selling players because if you remember he, like inexplicably got got his money back for Mido. I think he he eventually got his money back on Darren Bent once he had gone to Aston Villa and then there was a, there was a sell on clause in the deal with Sunderland. So I think eventually they got the money back on that. I think he got his money back on Didier Zakora and a few of the other deals that you know were kind of maybe mediocre at best. In terms of that initial investment, kind of he was able to kind of claw the money back, and I wonder whether that may have uh, kind of planted a seed in his mind that that's what he should always be looking to do, rather than just cut, kind of cutting his losses and selling a player for slightly under what they bought him for. 
and kind of moving on from it and just accepting that sometimes these things don't work out. Uh, and, I, and I definitely feel like sometimes Spurs have moved a little bit too slowly in a transfer market uh, purely because they're trying to eke out the last kind of couple of million pounds here or there, whether it be it, it coming in or going out. And that, particularly like under a manager like Pochettino, who who I think we would all agree would want every single player to be there on the training ground at the first day of pre-season. He just would. Um, and when things are kind of dragging on through to the end of August, I just don't think that's a particularly good situation for for a club who are kind of battling against the odds in the first place because we just don't have the money that the other clubs do. I would love, if I could ask Daniel Levy one question, it would be, does he like reading all of the stuff about himself being this like master negotiator? And has it almost gotten to his head? Because like we are dealing with a man who made a, a one and a half million profit on Benjamin Stambouli. So clearly he knows his way around the transfer market. But I, I, I do sometimes wonder, like he has had such kind of big wins and he has this kind of slightly comedic reputation for being this, you know, very tough negotiator. And yeah, has, has that kind of gone to his head? Did, did that influence his kind of later refusal to to kind of sell players and, and, and bring new players in because he just seemed he seemed really against breaking that successful team up in a way that he never had before um, which leads me to wonder you know how active was Pochettino in those discussions and maybe you know the simplistic argument is to kind of give Pochettino a, a free pass and, and blame it all on Levy um, but it does make you think because you know whatever your opinion on Levy and whatever your opinion on Tottenham's transfer policies He's had he's had some incredible incredible deals which he deserves praise for. Yeah, I definitely agree with with that, and also what James just said about that tension between trying to get the best deal at the end of the window and the interest in setting the team up for the new season. Like, you know, it, re- remember at the start of this season when Pochettino was complaining about how how difficult it was over the summer because he had so many players whose futures were uncertain because you know Tottenham were trying to sell Christian Eriksen to Man United at the start of this season. And there were big question marks over over plenty of those guys. Even back in 2016, uh, the start of the 2016-17 season, when Son nearly left the club and there were obviously talks about him, his transfer, and he didn't really get fully settled in until a few weeks into that season. So it's I think that, that kind of approach to negotiation maybe isn't always the best way for, for starting the season on the right foot. I know we, we touched on this last week, but I think if there's been one criticism of Levy that I think is fair, it's that, at these moments of maximum opportunity, which are basically the Ryan Nelson and Louis Saha window in 2012, and then again, you know, the absolute failure to buy anyone in 2018, right when I think the team needed a bit of a a gamble, really, like throwing a bit of money at, at it and then s- s- trying to push them over the line, that's what Levy failed to deliver, James. Yeah, he's never really been one for uh, spending from a position of strength. It just hasn't seemed to have been... I can't think of a window where it's felt like Spurs are in a really good state and then they've gone out and spent big money. Um, I mean, in, ironically enough, I mean, the closest they probably come to that might actually be last summer where their perception probably was, was that they are in pretty good nick. Uh, and then they went out and bought, you know, La Celso and Ndombele for big money. Um, but yeah, you're right. I remember being really frustrated in 2006 where they just missed out on the Champions League. And uh, fair enough, they did sign Berbatov, but it was only for 10, 11 million pounds. It, in the moment, didn't feel like a big deal. And 2010, when they did qualify for the Champions League, where I think they signed uh, Sandra early in the summer and then only brought in like Gallas and then Van der Vaart right at the end. And it kind of felt like they could have been a bit more ambitious in that window as well. I, 
you know, and, and then you kind of think back to other moments where he's gone out and splurged. I, I'm thinking about like 2008, where he clearly wanted to make he clearly wanted to make a statement when he knew they were going to lose Berbatov and Keane, and then went out and spent a lot of money on quite a few players. And again, when Bale left as well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I just it just he doesn't strike me as someone who who wants to take the gamble when. Uh, when he's happy with his hand. I don't really know if that analogy works at all. I'm not much of a, of a poker player, but uh, yeah, I'm sure people will let me know. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job. So you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom while in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off at manscaped.com with the code EPL20. Happy shaving. I think it also raises another question, which is, well, I don't think there's anyone who is as powerful at their club as Levy is at Tottenham. You know, even, even at Manchester United, Ed Woodward is answerable to the Glazers, who might not agree with him on things. And even at, at City, you've got Soriano, Brigestein, but then they've got Abu Dhabi on top of them. Uh, Chelsea, Marina Granascoy is answerable to Abramovich, but Levy really is the whole club at Spurs. Like he, it's very much his thing. He he runs it with incredible forensic control and attention to detail, and has done so for twenty years. So he's a very very powerful figure. But that sometimes raises a question of how does he, you know, who does he work through to get the right results on the pitch? Because he it can't just be the manager. And at various times he's gone for the director of football. And you've got, I think, Arneson, Comerley and Baldini. And I think Comerley actually worked quite well. I think he bought some pretty good players, even though he eventually was thrown out with the bathwater when Ramos went. But James, do you think it's do you think it's the right approach for Spurs? And, or do you think it's it's better just working with, with Daniel and the manager himself? I mean, I, I think actually if you look at it, with, with those three directors of football slash sport, as I think Baldini may have been... Um, They've actually all been involved in quite good deals. I mean, Arneson, the scale is different because Spurs were coming from a sort of lower mid-table for position. But if you look at the players they signed 2004, I mean, there were, there was a decent few players there that kind of went on to be, kind of form the nucleus of the Martin Yol team. Um, then commonly, as we know, I think, you know, brought in players like uh, Bale and, and Modric who were certainly involved in those deals. Um and again, like as you say, he was sacked when Ramos uh, when Ramos left left the club. But it, it kind of later transpired that actually some of those deals are pretty good as well, and that made up the nucleus of that Harry Redknapp team. And then again, Baldini. Now, for all of the criticism that the club got um, for uh, what is it, selling Elvis and buying the Beatles, you know, <laughs> Christian Eriksen clearly was a fantastic signing. Lamella's done reasonably well at the club over the last seven, eight years. Chadley had his moments, you know, the less said about Paulinho and Soldado, the better, but it wasn't exactly a complete disaster. So uh, it's, it's this clearly been a model that kind of has had its positives. And you do wonder whether had there been someone at the club, say, had, had Mitchell still been around, 
whether maybe things would have been a bit different, particularly in 2018, where clearly there just wasn't the process in place at the club to, to get deals done quickly. And Luke, what do you make of the departure of Gareth Bale and the players that came in to replace him and then, which I don't think did go very well, but then some of the signings under Mitchell and Pochettino, I think were really, really good, like Son, Alderweireld, Dyer, Delhi. Um, it was actually setting up the team that, that was so successful under Pochettino. Yeah, I mean, when you look back at how they spent the bail money, I know only one of those players was a true success in Ericsson. And personally, I love Lamella, but, you know, he's, he's a bit of a Marmite player and he hasn't had probably quite the impact he um, would have wanted. But that summer was quite difficult because everybody knew Tottenham had this kind of pot of money and uh, it must have been quite a difficult uh, market to negotiate in. I guess Levy's accused a lot of kind of failing to invest, but that summer and some of the other occasions that, that James just mentioned shows that, uh, you know, he, he does invest and I don't think he should be criticised too harshly for a lack of investment. And, you know, Spurs have just spent a billion pounds on a new stadium as well. But I think, you know, not all of those signings have been a success, obviously. And I don't think he's always signed the right players at the right time. You know, and I guess the biggest point here, and it's a point that you make um, very well in your, in your Levy profile that was published a couple of weeks ago, is that, you know, Tottenham are not Manchester City and they're not Chelsea. And... Uh, for various different reasons, Joe Lewis isn't going to pop up from his yacht to, to sign Lionel Messi. So they do have to kind of pay their own way and they have to spend quite sensibly. And they also have to target players of a certain profile and there's a risk to that. And sometimes it works, um, you know, with players like Deli Alley. And, and other times it, it backfires pretty spectacularly. I think, I think the real, like, shame with Leafy is that, you know, there's just two very distinct sides to him. And there's... One very impressive side, the kind of shrewd businessman who, you know, turned Tottenham into a, into a global brand. Um, but then there's also the, the Machiavellian uh, wheeler dealer who, you know, tried to sign Wilfred Zaha for 12 million. And it's, it's just a bit of a shame because I think that second side to Levy, even though it's a little bit of a character, as I mentioned, it has come to undermine the first side a little bit. And perhaps that will ultimately be his legacy, the fact that he's frugal and... Uh, attempts to sign players at ridiculous prices rather than the new stadium or those, all those signings that he got right. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. I think ultimately Levy's number one success at the club is the stadium. Um, this was a huge project. He completely oversaw it. He was wholly responsible for it. And he delivered a brilliant £1.2 billion stadium, which will settle Tottenham's future for the next 50 years. And I'm sure when life gets slowly back to something approaching what it was like in 2019... Uh, I think it will make Tottenham a lot of money through not just match days, but also non-match days as well. Uh, James, as a, as a fan and a sort of stadium goer, how do you how do you feel about that whole thing? Are you pleased with it, or do you still have that sense of it not quite being home? It definitely doesn't doesn't feel like home yet. I mean, it, the the big shame is that the, the Arsenal game uh, a few weeks ago uh, was behind closed doors because I think that that is the kind of 
that ultra-viral goal is the kind of moment that would make it feel like home. Like winning a North London derby, you know, Arsenal's first visit there. Uh, you know, and also kind of getting one over on them in terms of like finishing in European places in the league in the process would have just met, would have just been one of those moments that that you kind of remember for a long time and that give you a real sense of sort of pride and, and and whatever else. And there haven't been many of those in that stadium really. I mean, there have been some good moments. You know, the City Champions League game, the City Premier League game this season. But I mean, not you know, there's not really been loads to write home about. And I think it's just unfortunate that that, that, that you know, we, we talked about this the other week. I mean, it, it's just the way things have worked out. They've moved into this new stadium and they're scoped to make huge amounts of money and to kind of claw back, uh, you know, some of the some some of the kind of gaping chasm between their man Chelsea and Man City and whoever. And then suddenly there's a global pandemic and they can't make any money out of the stadium they've spent all this money on. And so it's clearly infor- unfortunate in a business sense and in a footballing sense. Um, but to answer your question more succinctly than that, I'd say the jury's out. I mean, clearly, clear, clearly in terms of the architecture, it's an incredible an incredible stadium. And it, obviously it's massively beneficial to be able to get more fans in there. But it is, it is just lacking that little bit of soul, I think, at the moment. That, uh, that I think you're only really going to get from sort of repeated... Uh, I disagree a little bit. I mean, I guess maybe it comes down to how much time you spent at White Hart Lane. And, you know, if you're a season ticket holder and you had the same seat for years, I can totally understand that. I mean, I didn't have a season ticket at White Hart Lane. I used to kind of go with my friends and get in however I could. And for me, the the build-up to the Ajax match, which we were both at, Jack, um, ahead of the um, semi-final first leg that was just incredible and for me that was one of those moments where you kind of feel like oh okay like this is this is the future like this is Tottenham now and it was this real moment of realisation that like Christ like Spurs have spent all this money they've they've got this incredible stadium they've got this incredible manager they're playing in a Champions League semi-final and it was this moment of realisation it's a shame it's all gone a little bit pear-shaped since then but I think you know of course the stadium is worth it and I think maybe you know I guess Football fans and consequently football journalists, we've all got a tendency to think very short term. And it's obvious why. Um, but like you said, by building this stadium, Levy has secured the financial future of the club for the next 20, 30, 50 years. I mean, that's incredible considering the point at which Enoch did inherit the club. Um, and also Tottenham have not only the best football stadium in the country, but the best American football stadium in the country and the best space for outdoor concerts and probably the best venue for outdoor boxing. So... You know, all of that stuff has to kind of be taken into consideration. And yes, you know, it's 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 not White Hart Lane and it doesn't feel um, as, as homely as White Hart Lane. But it's still very exciting and probably one of the few, uh, you know, good reasons to be a Spurs fan right now. James, how much credit do you think building the stadium has bought Levy with the fan base? Or do you think there's a view that that money should have been spent on... I don't know, Gonzalo Higuain and I was going to say Pablo Aymar. He's really old now. Like another good player, Dybala. Shouldn't he just bought Higuain and Dybala? I don't know about Higuain, mate. Uh, Dybala, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, ha- I have seen the argument and I think we may have mentioned it a few weeks ago. I, I, and I don't think, I, I don't think there's an argument for saying they should have spent that money on players rather than the, uh, rather than kind of on the infrastructure of the football club because, uh, well, look where that got Portsmouth. But, it is kind of unfortunate. You do sometimes think whether, you know, had this project been four or five years earlier or later, 
whether there might have been a bit more flexibility and a bit more budget to bring in the players that could have tipped Pochettino Spurs over the line and won them the title or even the Champions League. But, you know, if it's a straight choice between those two things, I think you have to invest in the football club rather than just in the team. Harry's sponsors The View from the Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are sick and tired of overpriced razors. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. As a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. And of course, one of the big questions about Spurs and their future is, what happens next? You know, Spurs are now an incredibly valuable club. Uh, it probably costs about £2 billion. There is interest in them from abroad. And I don't think it's impossible that Tottenham will be sold at some point. Um, now, I do think that Levy would want to stay on in the event of a sale to continue to run the club as a sort of CEO. Uh, Spurs fans might have their own views on that. So I don't think Spurs will be getting will be getting rid of Levy anytime soon. He wants to secure his legacy and run the club in the sort of new stadium era. James, do you think is there much of an appetite amongst the fans for a sort of Abramovich, Abu Dhabi type figure to take over at Spurs? Yeah, I'm sure there are loads of people that would love to uh, love to see Spurs have their moment like that. But it is kind of a bit of a better the devil you know situation, isn't it? Because we've seen way more of those big takeovers have ended badly than have ended well. I mean, it's only really Chelsea and Man City. I mean, I suppose if you, if you I guess maybe you could argue Wolves was a sort a sort of lower a lower level version of that. But if you think of other high profile supposedly big money takeovers at other clubs, you know, places like Blackburn, it just hasn't it just hasn't worked, has it? Um, QPR as well you know there was a time where people were saying a lot of money was going to be put in there and it would be inevitable that they'd become a championship club Uh, sorry a Champions League club sorry they did become a championship club Uh, obviously that didn't work either so when Pochettino was manager and and this was kind of like a a commonly uh, a commonly repeated motto among Spurs fans that it it was better to do it this way than to, to do it by having thrown loads of money at it and you know building a team slowly and investing over a long period having like academy players in the team uh, and kind of doing it quote unquote the right way would feel way, way better than just going out and spending 300 million pounds every summer. But I'm not, I'm not sure in reality, those are the two options really. I think it's gonna be very difficult now to, uh, to compete with, um, you know, teams like Manchester City, Chelsea, and for different reasons, Manchester United and Liverpool purely because they still have so much more money. Uh, and now, you know, FFP seemingly, if not disappearing completely, is going to change by, by you know, quite a bit. So, I don't know, I said it's a really difficult question. I'd be tempted to say no, just on a, on a personal level, purely because I just I would just be more worried that it would go wrong. Uh, I, I just think that it's... Aside from anything else, I just don't think there is going to be that much scope for that kind of investment now for the time being. I just don't really think it as a, think of it as a realistic possibility at the moment. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I don't think there's going to be a massive queue of people 
for the foreseeable future looking to invest hundreds of million pounds in football players. Yeah, I certainly think there's going to be fewer buyers at the moment for the for the club because of the pandemic. I I don't expect there to be much external investment anytime soon. So I think Spurs are going to be in the current situation for a while. Uh, they should be able to make some money back when the stadium op- fully opens, but we don't. You know, there's no point really in speculating when that will be or when Lady Gaga and Guns N' Roses and Anthony Joshua will return <laughs> to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And I do think Mourinho has been making some maybe ominous or maybe pessimistic noises in his recent press conferences about FFP. You know, about the, how some clubs don't obey it and the cast decision on Manchester City means that FFP is going to effectively become weaker rather than stronger and if other clubs start spending more money then it's going to make it harder for some a team like Tottenham that doesn't have as much money to throw around I mean you can only look at the money that Chelsea are willing to spend this summer after a pretty quiet few years in which they have had a transfer ban to think actually, you know, maybe the market might be about to change again, or rather, there maybe there will be a few teams who are able to take advantage of this, and Tottenham won't be one of them. And that will make it harder for Spurs, but I I suppose they just have to rely on the fact that they're going to have to be cleverer than anyone else and just manage to maximise their resources, which is, I suppose is what they've been doing all along. Um, Luke, would you like to see Daniel Levy stick around for the foreseeable future? It kind of depends. I mean, you know, the, the, the nugget in your piece where um, there's been suggestions that if Spurs were to be kind of bought out or if there was to be um, investment from some sort of place, he, Levy would stay on as CEO. I mean, I think that was my favourite detail. It's just, it's just the most Levy thing possible. Um, and it, it makes me warm to him a little bit because, you know, he's made his money and he's, he's, he's built the stadium and yet, he, he wants to continue and he wants to kind of steer the club to even more successful waters. So I, I do kind of respect him for that. Just to pick up on what James said, though, and, and what you just said about there being a kind of um, a limited number of options for, for the club um, being bought out. It, it does make me worry because I think that certainly in the immediate years after the pandemic, when you look at the places that are going to be buying football clubs, like it's going to be similar to what we're seeing play out at Newcastle, where... You know, Saudi Arabia are trying to buy a football club using their sovereign wealth fund. And I'm not sure that's a good thing for football. I'm not sure a lot of Tottenham fans would want that. Maybe some would. And we should probably also point out one man we haven't really mentioned today is, is Joe Lewis, who is very well off and lives in tax exile in the Bahamas and made a lot of his money betting against the pound. So yeah, Spurs are far from perfect, but I, f- I would say that, you know, they're preferable um, to the alternative for sure. So... Um, I definitely think Levy is, is preferable to a lot of the kind of people or bodies or states who could uh, take over the football club. So that that always makes me kind of hold myself back from slapping any Enoch out stickers and anything, put it that way. You can read that story on The Athletic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, James. Thank you, Luke, for your debut. And we'll be back with another podcast next week. <laughs>